Good morning, everyone. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, I totally meant to get up here and not say good morning and like it's afternoon. Let's be very intentional to, to say afternoon. As Matt said, we're back in our series in Exodus. Um, you should have gotten one of these handouts on uh, Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Uh, the words, if you don't have a, a, a copy of God's word with you, uh, the words for Exodus 15 uh, will come up behind me at some point. They'll, they'll, they'll be tracking with me. Um, <clears throat> let, me let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we ask now for your grace, for your help, as we look at your word this morning or this afternoon. Uh, Lord, help me to be clear. Uh, Lord, help uh, those under the word this morning uh, to be attentive. Lord, we pray, God, you're, you're working in our lives this morning. We pray that you would, you would help us to see from your word what a gloriously great and awesome God you are. Father, we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Magnify your son this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So you'll see there on your outline the, the title of uh, this morning's sermon is A Song of Deliverance, A Song of God's Dwelling Presence. Um, this is a, a song, uh, an embedded song, poem, within the narrative of Scripture. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But as I was preparing this, to speak this morning, I was thinking this week about the power of song, the power of music, um, and just how songs connect with us. They connect intellectually, but oftentimes more so emotionally. Uh, they connect with our head uh, and with our hearts. They're memorable, right? In fact, um, this Friday I was picking up my kids from music lessons and they said something and it triggered a song in my mind that I don't think I have sung out loud um, since I was a teenager. I'm 42 years old now, so it's been a while. And the, what they said triggered the lyrics and I began to sing out the lyrics word for word and with the right tune and the right notes. Right? Songs are memorable. They tap into everyday realities. And at times they tap into massively important historical events or shifts in history. Certain songs for me, when I hear them, I, I will think of a specific time or a moment in my life. Right? There's an old country western song that goes something like, ain't it funny how a melody brings back a memory, right? The song itself, those are the lyrics. And, and that's what songs often do, right? They continue to evoke feelings in us, sometimes good ones. Sometimes we hear a song and it brings back a memory and we think, yeah, it's a good time. Other times they evoke memories that we'd rather forget. But they have power. Songs have 
power. They connect, like I said a moment ago, our, our thoughts and our feelings, and, and oftentimes they inform our thoughts and our feelings. They shape our identity. Sometimes we select certain songs because those are the things that we like, but they are shaping us. They are forming us. And Exodus 15, 1 through 18, which the full passage we're looking at this morning we'll look at, we'll, I'll read in a second, uh, has the, like a, 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 a prose narrative frame around it, and we'll focus fundamentally on uh, the verses of the song itself. But the song of the sea or the song by the sea here in Exodus 15 is fundamentally about shaping identity, forming a people who will worship and serve the living God. Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible where there are songs, right? There are other ones come to mind. Um, Judges 5, where Deborah, the prophetess, uh, gives this song. Another one is uh, as a prayer, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. You know the story about her, she's barren, not able to have a child. She prays to God, God gives her a child, and now she's going to dedicate this child, Samuel, to the Lord, and she offers up this prayer. And then, of course, 2 Samuel 22, 1 through 51, uh, which is a, a, a song of praise for deliverance that David offers up to the Lord. It's actually the same passage as Psalm 18. There are others, uh, but... What, what I want to say right now before we dive into our passage, um, for your own reading of Scripture, there, there's a function of these songs within Scripture. There's a function of poems. Whenever, like in uh, the Torah of Moses, the first five books, um, these poetic passages, Genesis 49 is one, uh, Numbers 23 through 24, the Balaam oracles is another key one. These poetic passages, these songs or poems, are Hebrew poetry embedded within the larger narrative, Hebrew prose, and they function sort of in, in this way where they're re relating to one another. Like, you really can't understand this song unless you've read the narrative of Exodus, Right? And there's another sense in which this song actually shines light onto the narrative and reveals key things in the narrative that you would not see apart from the song. I'm building some suspense here. You're like, ooh, tell me more, tell me more. But, but this goes on earlier in the Pentateuch. For instance, I mentioned Genesis 49, right? Genesis, the first book in the Old Testament, is all about genealogies. It's tracing the generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam. And the reason why that's going on is because of human sin and, and human rebellion against God. And God, in the face of human rebellion, promised, way back in Genesis 3, a redeemer. He promised that there would come one from Eve, the seed of the woman, who would save his people. He would destroy the devil. And so Genesis is all about tracing who that seed is, right? It's 
Seth. It's coming through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And when you get to the end of Genesis, you're thinking, well, I mean, Joseph is the fair-haired child. He is right-hand man to the Pharaoh. Salvation is coming to the surrounding nations through Joseph. Clearly, the king is coming through Joseph. And then you read Genesis 49, and it's a poem. It's Hebrew poetry. And Jacob gathers up. He gathers up uh, the boys, the sons, and he's speaking to them what is going to happen in the latter days. And it's in that context that he speaks about how a king is going to come from Judah, how the brothers will bow to Judah, how the nations will bow to this king that's coming from Judah, that the scepter of his kingdom will not depart from him. Now, that's pretty important because you're reading and you're wondering who is the king coming from. And by the time we get then to the book of Genesis with that passage, light is shed on the whole narrative that there's a king that's coming from Judah. And of course, David comes from Judah. And of course, Jesus comes from David. Right? But this is revealed, and it's revealed through the poetic passage. And our passage sheds similar light upon the whole book, the whole narrative of Exodus, and what God is doing in the Exodus. Let's, let's look now at Exodus 15, 1 through 21, and then we'll, we'll work through the passage together. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are, sti- they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That's the end of the song. It goes on in verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Really, the heart of this passage this morning, the main idea, the thesis I have there on your outline. Sorry, it may be a little confusing. I have the Lord slash Yahweh slash Jesus. Okay, so Y-H-W-H is the consonants of the divine name often translated in the, in the, in the English Bible, the Lord, in all caps. Uh, but this is true. What's true of the Lord is true of Jesus. So that's why I have all three of those there. So the Lord, the incomparable God, demonstrates his unrivaled power and kingship by delivering his people from slavery. He does this in order that he might bring us to himself, to his very own holy presence, that we might dwell in his midst. So two main points this morning. The first 11 verses, we'll be talking about singing God's power to deliver. And then the second point from verses 12 to 18 is singing God's promise to dwell in our midst. So singing God's power to deliver. These first 11 verses are poetically, lyrically recalling quite vividly Yahweh's unmatched, unparalleled, and incomparable power to deliver his people from the most powerful human being in the world at this time in history. And as I read over that, it seems as though he does it like nothing, just reaching out his right hand and throwing them in the sea. We don't want to miss in the first three verses as well how personal this is as the people sing, Yahweh is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. I I just want to drive home this morning at this point just how personal salvation is. Salvation that the Bible speaks about, that the gospel procures for us, is not hypothetical. 
That is to say, just because people around you are religious or believe in Jesus or your parents trust in Jesus does not mean that you're a Christian. It's, it's personal. These, these who will be baptized next Saturday will be testifying that Jesus is their Savior, my Lord, as they identify with him in baptism. And doing so, my strength, my song, my salvation, this is exalting God and, and, and deflecting us, isn't it? That's what the statement of needing to be saved does. I guess it was probably about 12 years ago, um, I was swimming in Lake Champlain with a friend of mine named Cal Bittner, and we got out past the tree line, I took on some water and I began to drown. And Cal yelled out to me, are you okay? And I said, no. I couldn't hardly breathe. And in fact, in that moment, with my wife on a balcony looking pregnant with our first child, there was a part of me that had already made peace with dying because I knew I couldn't make it to the boat 30 feet away. We were far enough out, there was no going back. And, and I wasn't going to make it. Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. Help. Right? And Cal came back, and he was like in his 50s at the time. Thankfully, he was very fit, because I'm a big boy. And he came around, got underneath me, and he swam with one arm and dragged me to safety. He saved me. Right? There's nothing about that story that says, I'm awesome, I'm great, I'm adequate. No, it's actually kind of humbling. It's actually kind of humiliating. You know, I had to be saved. I thought I could make the swim. Guess I couldn't. You know, that day, Cal Bittner was my hero, my savior. And that's the nature of this language that praises mighty God. There's nothing in this song that praises the Israelites. Nothing, not a speck. This is theocentric. It's all about God and what he has done. And it's personal. And it's personal for God because beginning back in Exodus chapter one, it was the Lord who was blessing his people. He brought them into Egypt. He brought them into exile, just as he promised Abraham back in Genesis 15 that he would. He brought them in, and then he caused them to flourish. He takes them from 70 to now a massive number of people, such that the Pharaoh in Exodus 1 was concerned that either they would take over or that they would unite with some of their other enemies and conquer them. And so he enacts this genocidal attack on the male seed of Israel. So any male children being born would be killed and thrown into the sea. Now when we get to this, right, which is singing God's power to save, it's extolling God's power to destroy his enemy. And it is his enemy. It is his enemy. So back and forth, back and forth in these first 11 verses, 
It's the praise of mighty Yahweh and the declaration of victory over Egypt. The praise of mighty Yahweh, victory over Egypt. There in verses 8 through 10, it's probably the largest unpacking of describing poetically the salvation that God is bringing to pass for his people. Hebrew poetry functions through an economy of words. Few words, highly figurative language to speak of the same concrete realities that the surrounding narratives have gotten at. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. He's creating this way for his people to come through. It's going on. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, we got him. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The splitting of the sea is referenced. Israel passes through the sea on dry ground, but the sea becomes a watery tomb for Egypt. The same event is salvation for God's people, but judgment for God's enemy. In the surrounding Exodus narrative, you may recall that there's 10 signs or 10 wonders, 10 miracles, often called 10 plagues. And, and the last plague was what God had promised from the very beginning of the narrative when he said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my son, my firstborn son go, or I will kill your firstborn son. So we know back in chapter 4 that this is where it's going. And so in the coming of the 10th wonder, the 10th miracle, the, the, the slaying of the firstborn son of Egypt, lest we think that the people of Israel were, morally speaking, any better off than Egyptians, they don't get a pass because they're God's people. What happens in the Passover? God supplies a substitute. If the firstborn in Israel are not to die, then they are to take a lamb which will be eaten by their family or by multiple families. They'll take the blood and they'll, they'll, they'll put it on the doorpost and over the lintel. If the blood was applied by faith, then the Israelite firstborns would be spared the judgment of God. Again, not because they're better than the Egyptians, but because of God's grace and by trusting in the provision and the means that he had given to procure their salvation. And at the waters of the sea as well, God judges his enemy, but, but saves his people. All right, in 1 Corinthians 10, 2, Paul connects the people of God passing through the water of the sea with baptism, which we'll be celebrating next week. In which we, 
who are believing in Christ, those who have believed in Christ, are submerged into the water, buried together with Christ in his death, and raised up with him in new life. Do you see? The sea was judgment. The sea was death for the Egyptians, but, but, but God brought his people through the waters of judgment. Hence, the sea crossing points to the, to, to, to the cross of Christ. You see, you see, at the cross, all of God's judgment for the sins of all who would believe was placed upon Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But in that very same event, we who are trusting in Christ have salvation from our sins. We're released from bondage. Our enemy is defeated and will ultimately be destroyed. And most importantly, Jesus took God's judgment for our sins. He bore them away. So for all who would trust in Jesus alone to save them, and from the wrath of God, we baptize them by immersion in water, a watery tomb, a watery death, from which we are brought through, much like the Israelites, though we are brought through by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And verse 11 leaves us praising, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Lord alone is praised here, not us. Not, not our worthiness, not our fitness, not our otherwise savability. We're pretty good people. I mean, when you look back in Exodus 14, 10 through 14, God's already smacked Egypt and he's brought his people out. In fact, they plundered the Egyptians. They were showering them with gifts just as God had promised. And they're coming out, but then God hardens Pharaoh's heart to go in after them because he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's going to judge him. He's going to get glory over him. He's going to make sure that Pharaoh knows the name of Yahweh, that Egypt knows, that the Israelites know, that all the nations know. And, and they're complaining. Why would you bring us out? We'd have been better off serving Egypt than to be dying out here in the wilderness. He doesn't say, fine, I'm not going to save you. See, he still saves them. Nobody's deserving of grace. Nobody's deserving of salvation. Or it wouldn't be grace. Redemption, salvation, deliverance isn't, however, an end in itself. Verses 12 through 18 give us the goal, the end for which the Lord, our God, saves his people for himself. Look again at verses 12 through 18. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by. 
till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So point number two, singing God's promise to dwell in our midst. God doesn't simply save us from judgment. He doesn't simply redeem us from slavery. He restores us to himself. He brings us to his very presence to come and dwell in the midst of his people. Indeed, there are some commentators on Exodus that see this passage as the hinge for the whole book. And the reason why that is, if you know how Exodus flows, when you get into chapter 25 through 40, it's fundamentally about the building of the tabernacle. Right? Colors of yarn, different types of wood, all the construction, what the priest is going to wear. It's the kind of stuff that usually wrecks people's Bible reading plans, you know. Everybody's doing really good. They're like, Genesis was pretty interesting. Exodus, wow, that was, that was, that was thrilling. And then you hit about, eh, about Exodus 25, and then it seems very, 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 um, how should I say, not user-friendly for maybe what you're wanting to read. Just as a side note, my recommendation is to read large chunks of Scripture on, on passages like that. Uh, if you plow through it like one chapter a day, it gets really, really boring. It's actually very helpful to read certain passages like 15 or 20 chapters at a time, then you actually see what's going on, and you're like, oh, that's massive. I mean, God has redeemed his people. This is massive. Now he's coming to dwell in their midst. Now that's exciting, but it's also terrifying. It's also terrifying, and that's the whole point of the book of Leviticus, right? How does a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people that rebel over and over and over again, and this whole thing doesn't end up really, really bad. Like everybody obliterated. Well, that's what Leviticus is about. And that's what 25 through 40 is largely about. Looking at verses 12 through 13, the writer's getting at Yahweh delivering his people to shepherd his people to a holy pasture land. Right? The language in verse 13 especially is shepherding language. It sounds a lot, when you read it, it sounds a lot like Psalm 23. You know, the Lord guiding and directing and leading his sheep. In fact, how the ESV translates that he's going to bring them to your holy abode. Holy abode here in verse 13 quite literally means holy pasture land. Right? It's a feeding area that a shepherd would lead his sheep into along a journey. And this destination referred to connects down to verse 17, but it's not necessarily the same place. Down below it's talking about your own holy mountain, uh, your abode, the sanctuary. In, in fact, this first reference, this holy pasture land, very likely is the other side of the sea. He, he led them through, as it were, the valley of the shadow of death into green pastures on the other side, and now they're there looking back and they're seeing death and carnage 
that, that God has saved them through. He's brought them to himself. In verses 14 through 16, reference three geographical areas in Canaan as he's bringing his people there. Terror and dread are falling on these people. This is preparing the way for the conquest when he brings them in in the book of Joshua. And this is the very thing that the Lord said he was going to do in the narrative of, of Exodus, right? He wanted his fame to be spread all over, the, all over the earth. And lest we think that God's a megalomaniac and he's just kind of like wants everybody to think he's great, well, that would be true if it was you or me, you know, talking about our fame being spread all over the world. But when, when there is a being like God who is infinitely glorious, then it's actually for everyone's good for us to know him and, and for him to spread his fame. And indeed, when we flip in the book of Joshua, we find Rahab, the prostitute. And what does she say? Our hearts have melted. We've heard about your God, and she believes. She comes out from her, her unbelieving family. She believes, and you know, pick up and you read Matthew 1, and she's in the Messiah's genealogy. But it's all about where he's taking his people. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Yahweh, king forever over his people in his sanctuary. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The story of the Exodus in this song recall and retell the larger story of what God is all about. From Genesis 1-1, God is king. Yahweh, God, is king of the cosmos by virtue of being its creator. He created humanity as his image to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth. Genesis 1-3 through tell the first part of the story. And Genesis 3 tells us that the Lord God, that his image bears, Yahweh God's image bears, his vice regents, Adam and Eve, committed treason against their king and their God. While humanity once dwelt with God in his place in the Garden of Eden, because of sin, their failure to heed the king's edicts, they were banished from his presence. Exodus continues the story of the king's reclamation project started in Genesis 3 where a future conquering king was promised. Now our passage shows that the Lord God, our great shepherd king, redeemed his people from slavery. He, he delivered them from death in order that he might come and dwell in their midst. This recalls what 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 the Lord God has done. But it foreshadows where he's taking them. When we read verse 17 about the Lord's place, his own mountain, it's literally the mountain of his inheritance. This is his place, the sanctuary which his hands have established. 
Some scholars think this is talking about Mount Sinai. Some think it's talking about the tabernacle, which is where this narrative is going. That's how Exodus will conclude. Uh, Some people think it's talking about the temple. In fact, some critical scholars think, well, yeah, this is a great evidence that this is written late because it's referencing the temple. It's clearly referencing the temple. Actually, I think it's not referencing any one of those specifically. I think it's intentionally ambiguous because I think it's, in a sense, referencing all of those. I, I think oftentimes we think wrongly about the Scripture And this is perhaps written by the prophetess Miriam, right? So there's a prophetic element of this. And I think people think wrongly like prediction and then like one fulfillment. And oftentimes when you read the Bible, there's a promise and there's multiple escalating fulfillments. Okay? So, yeah, I think it could very well reference God coming with his people at Sinai. I mean, that's Exodus 19 through Numbers 10. It's massively important. That's when God's presence come down on the mountain. That's when the Lord speaks his covenant, his ten words over his people. He brings them in as his own. I will be your God. You shall be my people. The, The movement of the narrative of Exodus is like God's presence moves from Sinai to the tabernacle. When you read the very end, it speaks of how The glory of God comes down upon the tabernacle. And it's so amazing, so awesome is his presence that Moses cannot go in. And the same is true when you look at the passage where Solomon is dedicating the temple that's built in 1 Kings 8. The same thing happens. The glory of God, his presence comes down on the temple such that the priests can't enter in. And yet, throughout the Bible, it's clear this is not it. This isn't it. There's more. What what Moses is talking about, what Miriam are talking about here, is pointing beyond the temple. Isaiah records the words of the Lord in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and in the temple, would have been like a footrest for God. Heaven is his throne. That's like his footrest, like his autumn, and he puts his foot on, right? But this tabernacle, this temple, this can't contain God. And then when we turn into the New Testament, in Matthew 12, Jesus is interacting with people, and in the context of talking about David eating the bread of presence and so on and so forth, he says something greater then the temple is here. What does he mean? What does he mean? Me. He says me. He's the greater than Solomon. He's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. In John 2, 18 through 22, right after cleansing the temple at the beginning of his ministry, he cleanses the temple. Hey, who gives you the right or authority to do this? Who, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days... I will raise it up. Oh, it took 46 years to build this. Who do you think you are? John's like, 
in parentheses, after he was raised from the dead, we realized he was talking about his own body. And then back in John 1, John is telling us about the cosmic Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God created everything through the Son. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where is God's presence now? In the incarnate Son of God. It's not in the temple anymore. He is the temple. He's the tabernacling presence of God. And as we keep reading scripture on, God's dwelling presence is within us, individually and corporately. With the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father in Acts 1 and through the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, at Pentecost, the place of the Lord's dwelling presence is now the church. A ragtag bunch of people like you and me. God decides to take up habitation. Ephesians 2.22, in him, you also are being built together in Christ. You also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are living stones being built up into a holy temple in the Lord Christ, Jesus being the cornerstone. We are the place of God's presence, the people of God, the church. Peter also says we're priests in that temple. He says that we've been, we've been saved to declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. But that's not it. It goes to the very end of Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem. We're told the new heavens and a new earth that is the new Jerusalem. And it's described as a cube, right? Same height, length, and all that. It's like, huh, that's interesting. What is, what's going on there? The only other cube in the Bible is the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and the temple. The, the point is that all of the new creation is the Holy of Holies. Uh, the text says there's no temple in the new Jerusalem because the Father and the Son, the Lamb, they are the temple. There's going to be no, 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 no luminaries because the glory of the Lord will fill it all. Right? What, what Moses is talking about, what Miriam perhaps is talking about in Exodus, God's redemption of his people in the Exodus, this is the gospel. It's pointing to ultimately to what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and where he is taking us, where he is shepherding us to his very presence. He says in John 14, if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you may be also. I just want to conclude with a few thoughts. Very obvious thoughts, I think, but we were made by God for God. We were made by God for God. One of the earliest catechism questions I ever taught my kids, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. We were made for him. We were made to be in his presence. And that's what all of scripture is about. God's redeeming love to come and rescue a people for himself, bring him to, bring us to himself. And now we, he abides in us and soon we will abide with him. Secondly, redemption, salvation, deliverance throughout the Bible is always ultimately, fundamentally about God. We simply fail when we try to make it about ourselves. It's fundamentally theocentric. God is destroying his enemy, his enemies and his enemy, singular. He is enacting justice. He's the judge, we're not. And it's about him getting us back restoring us to himself. That's his initiative. Yes, if you're not in Christ and you're considering the things of the gospel, pray, read the Bible, seek him, talk with people, right? You're not just some passive person being acted upon. You, you ought to seek the Lord. But like I called out to my friend to save me, it, it, it's ultimately, you can't save yourself. You're ultimately calling out to him to save you. He alone is able to rescue deliver. And then as we just talked about, salvation is not an end in itself. He didn't save you just so you wouldn't have to go through eternal punishment. He saved you so that he could live with you and that you could live with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And sometimes I think we think of the new heavens and the new earth is a, 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 and, and the gospel perhaps is just a get out of jail free card. Like I don't want to incur punishment. Well, nor do I. Nor do I. But it's more than that. He's given us himself. The goal of salvation is fellowship with God, being with him. It's worship. It's worship. And, and, and all of life is worship. It's about living a life devoted to him. Singing songs like we do on Sunday morning. That alone is not worship. It's part of it, though. And it's a key part of it. We, we ought to be a people that are exuberant in praise. Now, with different personality types, there's a continuum there, right? What's exuberant for one person may not be so exuberant for another person. Think about my doctoral supervisor. He was like the most, like, just not excitable person. He'd be like, yeah, all right. That's like, he's really stoked. Yeah. You know, where I might be like, yeah, if my football team wins. And I think about that. If I get that excited about my football team winning a game, how about my enthusiasm about the gospel and about God winning a people back to himself? This is what some people will call doxological evangelism. We sing the gospel here at Liberty. We sing it. And as the people of God, we ought to be exuberant in praise. If people come in who don't know Jesus, they ought to see us. Maybe they think we're foolish. Maybe they think we're crazy. But I hope they think this, these people love Jesus as we sing it. The song of the sea is a song of deliverance. And it's a promise of Yahweh's dwelling presence. Jesus the incomparable God demonstrates his unrivaled power, kingship, by delivering his people from slavery. He does this in order that he might bring us to himself, to his very own presence, so that we might dwell in his midst forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your tender mercies. And we want to sing your praise. Amen.